This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love. Even you guys can be seated. I want to thank uh, Wilson and Corby for stepping in for us um, today. Luke's out of town, and, and so we're giving our band uh, the, the week off. We appreciate you guys doing that so much. So if you are new today, um, we have been walking through uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, and today we're going to be in chapter 7 and 8, and we're talking about trusting God in your crisis. Isaiah chapter 7, and so we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 of chapter 7, and then look at verses 11 through 14 of chapter 8. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as we, as we look at the text together. Isaiah chapter 7 and, and beginning with verse 1. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Aram's king Rezan and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of reason of, of, and Aram, the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabeel's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in your faith then you will not stand at all. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now let's go to chapter 8 and let's look at verses 11 through 14. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. 
Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us and that by your spirit you would enable us to trust you. Whatever whatever the the, the pressure points are in our lives or the, the, the things that we're fearing this morning, we pray that you would give us the grace to release that to you to lay those things down as we just sung and to put them in your hands and to, and, to, to, and to fear you alone, to hold you in a holy, reverent awe. And so we pray that you would deal with our hearts right now, right where we need it the most. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On April the 12th, 1945, my dad was on a, a ship fighting in, in World War II. And it was on that date that they heard that President Roosevelt had died in Warm Springs, Georgia. And he had been elected president four times. And so for my dad and the other, other young sailors on that ship, he was basically the only president that they had ever known that they could even remember. And of course, we know now that the war was going to end in August with the dropping of the atomic bombs, but no one knew that in April. All they knew at that point was that just a few weeks before the Battle of Iwo Jima had taken place, and judging from the, the results of that, it looked like it was going to take years before the war was going to end. And so the the, the death of the president was jarring, you know, to Americans. It was unsettling. And, and we saw last week that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was called to be a prophet. And so he was called to be a prophet at a very unsettling time for Judah because Uzziah had been their king for over five decades and now he was gone. So it was, it was, it was, very, it was very unsettling to, uh, to the people. And not only was their king dead, but they were facing a significant threat because the Assyrian Empire was rising in the north, dominating, you know, grabbing land, flexing their, their muscles. And so it's, it's at this point that Isaiah is, is, is called. Um, and what's, what's going on kind of behind the scenes is that as the Assyrian Empire rises and, threat, and, and threatens, the, 
the, the king of Syria, reason, and the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, Pika, form an alliance. They form sort of a mutual defense pact against the Assyrians. And what's happening is they try to force King Ahaz of Judah to join their alliance, which he refuses to do. And when he refuses, they threaten to attack Ahaz and the people of Judah. And this has Ahaz and his people terrified with fear. So look at um, verse 2 of chapter 7. It says, The heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Has your heart ever been there? If we're honest, I think we've all been there. The question is, how do we deal with unhealthy fear? Let's talk about it. First of all, let's talk about fighting fear with faith. Fighting fear with faith. Look at verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. So this takes place in Jerusalem. And God is saying to Isaiah, I want you to go out and I want you to meet with King Ahaz. And here's where you can find him. You, you can find him down by this, this pool. This is not a pool where you have fun in, <laughs> swim in. This is like a reservoir pool. So what Ahaz is doing is Ahaz is out inspecting the water supply of Jerusalem because he is expecting to be attacked. He's terrified. And so Ahaz here, Ahaz is not really thinking about God. <laughs> He's not thinking about God's protection, God's provision. Instead, he's thinking about stockpiling water. You know, too often, we can do the same thing you know, in, in our own lives. Um, instead of you know, trusting, trusting God's protection, trusting its provision, I mean, sometimes we, we, we don't want to give because we're afraid we're not going to have enough and we just kind of like need to keep stockpiling more. But see, that doesn't take into account who God is. God is our protector. God is our provider. Ahaz is not thinking about stuff like that, right? He is terrified. He's out at this pool because he's terrified that they're going to be attacked, and what happens in verse 4? This is the message that God gives to Isaiah to relay to King Ahaz. God says, say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly. You know, there's a reason why the command to fear not is the most frequent command in the Bible. <laughs> It's because God knows that we, we deal a lot in our lives with the issue of, of, 
of fear. And it might be financially related, it might be family related, it might be job related, it might be health related or something else. But we, we struggle with this a lot, worry and, and fear, we, 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 we do. And, and the truth is that um, just like Ahaz and his people here, we, we, can, we, we can spend a lot, of our, a lot of our lives shaking like trees in the wind. That's not how God wants you to live as his child. It's not. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to calm down and be quiet. He wants you to be still and know that he is God and that he loves you and that he's got your back. Look at the, the last part of verse 4 here. God says to Isaiah, say to, say to King Ahaz, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. That's the two kings that were threatening to attack him. Uh, smoldering sticks. We could compare it to like a couple of, you know, snuffed out cigarette butts or something. You know, God says, say to the king, you know, those guys are nothing. They're a couple of little smoldering sticks. They're nothing to me. I can deal with them. They're no problem for me. Don't be afraid of them. I've got this. I was in New York City one time with my daughter Courtney, and we were walking to a Broadway show. And so we're walking through Midtown Manhattan, thousands of people. And out of all those thousands of people, there's this one guy who starts following us, and specifically following Courtney. And he said a couple of things to her, and, uh, you know, and she said, Dad, there's this guy, and he said something, and he's following us. And so, you know, I turned around and said, and told him to stop, um, and did that twice, and he kept following, and we rounded a corner, and there is a New York City police officer, and I was really glad <laughs> to see him. And so I went up to the officer, and I, I said, I said, this guy is following my daughter and he keeps following and we've told him to stop and he won't stop. Um, and this officer just says, sir, you and your daughter have a wonderful evening. You go on, do whatever you were planning on, on doing. And I said, well, what about him? And the officer said, oh, don't worry, I got him. <laughs> and I knew from his, the authority of his voice that the problem, was, it, it was over, right? It was over. He, he had it, right? That's what God is saying here. I've got this. I've got this. I've got these two guys that you're so afraid of. Verses 5 and, and 6. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tobiel's son as king in it. So you know, there really was a threat, I mean, the threat was, was, was real, right? They, they really did want to attack Judah and get rid of King Ahaz and put a puppet king in his place. That was all true. But what was also true was that God could take care of them. 
that God had it, that God's power was so much greater than this alliance that was forming against Judah. And see, there's an alliance that has formed against us as well. A far greater alliance. It's the, it's the alliance of sin and death. There's an alliance of sin and death that has formed uh, against us. And that's true. I mean, that's real. But what's, what's also real is that sin and death have already been defeated. Christ has defeated sin by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. Christ has defeated death through his resurrection from the dead. And so, yeah, the, the threat of sin and death, it's there, it's real. What's also true is that it's already been defeated by our Savior. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. So in other words, God says here, this, this invasion, Ahaz, that you're terrified about, it's not even going to happen. It's not going to happen. And furthermore, I have set a drop-dead date for these two kings and the kingdoms that you are so afraid of. I'm going to deal with them. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Look at verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And this is sort of like a, a play on words here. You, you could almost, you could almost, uh, you could almost put, it, put it this way. If you, if you don't hold on to God, then you won't hold on. If you don't hold on to God, you won't hold on at all. If you don't stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. But if you'll lean on God and trust him, he'll take care of you. Ray Ortland says this, God is attracted to weakness and need and honesty. He is repelled by our self-assured pride. And see, that's really what's at the heart of, of, of fear, is our pride. Because we want to be in control. We don't want to let go. We don't want to give whatever it is to God. We want to take it ourselves. And so we default to our pride. We've got to fight fear with faith. Okay, second, let's talk about fighting panic with promises. Fighting panic with the promises of God. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. So God kind of gives him a blank check here. He says, just ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Now, Ahaz sounds like really pious here, right? I will not test the Lord. But, but really, he's just being lame. 
really, this is just like a lame excuse not to trust God. And Isaiah sees right through it. So Isaiah responds in verses 13 and 14. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So what on earth is going on here? (laughs) It seems like we've jumped far into the future. So one of the things that we need to understand about Old Testament prophecy is that a lot of times there is uh, an ultimate fulfillment in the long term, and there's a more immediate fulfillment in, in more the, the, the near term. And that's the case with, with this prophecy. So we know that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 is the birth of Christ, right? In fact, Matthew, in the first chapter of Matthew, when he's talking about the birth of Jesus, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23. She will give birth to a son, and you were to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he quotes Isaiah 7.14. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Um, So that's the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. But there was also a fulfillment that was going to happen in more of the near term. Because what we learn at the beginning of chapter 8 is that Isaiah is getting ready to get married. And he's going to marry a prophetess and and they are going to have a son. It's not going to be a virgin birth like the birth of Jesus. right? But at the point in time that he is speaking about that event, in chapter 7, they were not yet married. She was still a virgin at that point. Um, but he's speaking about what is to come. So this is another thing, by the way, about Old Testament prophecy. A lot of times, God gives the prophet things to say that are beyond what the prophet even understands at that point. Did Isaiah at this point completely understand, you know, that uh, that that Jesus, that God's son, was going to be was was going to be going to be incarnate and be, you know, born of a of a virgin and, and all of that? Probably not. Um, but God knew, right? So a lot of times the prophets are are saying even more than what they understand that they are saying. But in the near term, what Isaiah is saying here is that. I'm getting ready to to be married. My wife and I are going to have a son, and here's what's going to happen. So look at chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4. I was then intimate with the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hash Baz. Probably not on any of your baby lists names. For before the boy knows how to call father and mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. So what God is saying here is that, you know, before this child is even old enough to say mommy and daddy, God will have already dealt with Syria and with the 10 northern tribes. He's going to take care of that. He's promised it. And this squares with what we see back in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 and verse 16. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Again, God is saying before this this child that Isaiah and his wife are going to have, before he's even old enough to, to know right from wrong, I am going to deal with uh, Pika of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. I'm going to deal with reason of Syria, right? Those two kings you dread, Ahaz, are going to be abandoned. Their, land, their kingdoms are going to be abandoned. But Judah also was going to pay a heavy price for their refusal to trust God. And we see that in verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim was separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So remember what's going on. You've got the king of Syria and the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel. They formed this alliance, right? Formed this mutual defense pact. They try to force King Ahaz of Judah to join. He refuses to join. And so they threaten to attack him. Why did he refuse to join their alliance? Was it because he trusted God to protect Judah? No. (laughs) He did not trust God to protect Judah. The reason he didn't join their alliance is because he was already paying off the Assyrians not to attack them. He had secretly entered into an alliance with, with with the Assyrians not to attack Judah. Now here's what this was like. This would be like a a mouse who was being attacked by two rats paying a cat for protection. It will not end well for the mouse, right? And, And this is not going to end well for Judah. Whenever we are threatened and we're afraid, and we try to invent kind of our own schemes for our protection, we always get burned. It's so much better to look to God and to trust in him. All right, now, let's, let's move to chapter 8, and let's look at verses 11 and 12. For this is what the Lord has said to me, with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Um, 
He says, don't call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. People are suckers for conspiracy theories, right? Then and now. And what's, what's really bad is when, when Christians uh, buy into this. You know, listen, quit clicking into the, the internet and wasting a lot of time picking through trash. Instead, start opening your Bible and mining treasure. He says, do not be terrified. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Look, it's completely understandable. If, if people don't know God, it's totally understandable that they would be filled with fear, but that should not be you, right? If you trust him, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, faith is the refusal to panic. But how do we crush unhealthy fear in our lives? The way that we crush unhealthy fear is to cultivate a healthy fear. And that's the fear of God. To, to a reverent awe of God. Look at verse 13. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. In other words, treat God as God. Again, Ray Ortland says, the question we should be asking each day is more profound than have I said a prayer. That's a good thing to do. But we should be asking ourselves, am I trusting God right now where it counts for me? If we welcome God as our ally and yield to his way, his timing, his control, his glory, he will fight for us. But if we insist in going out on our own and not trusting God, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fight our battles alone. Look at verse 14. He will be a sanctuary. Listen, if you trust in him, he'll be a place of refuge for you. We sung it earlier, run to the Father. If you trust him, if you do that, he will be a place of refuge for you. He will be a sanctuary for you. He will be a fortress for you. But if you refuse to do that, and you, you go your own way, it's going to be a stone that you're going to trip over. Look at the latter part of verse 14. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, this should sound familiar to many of you, because it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. One of those times is in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, it's Jesus, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. You are either building your life 
on Jesus as your cornerstone or you're running from him and he's the stone that you're tripping over. And for those of us who who claim to be his followers, it's one thing to talk a good game and say that we believe, but what about when the crisis comes and our faith is tested? Again, I I love what, what Ray Ortland says about this. Conversion to Christ is only the beginning. And how do we learn but in our crises? That's when God takes the training wheels off our bikes and teaches us to ride like the big kids. God is saying, in your crisis, when it counts for you, trust me. I will keep my every promise. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for who you are, and we thank you that we can come to you through your son who defeated sin by dying for our sins on the cross, who defeated death by rising from the dead. And, And because of his finished work, you have adopted us as your own, and we can run to you as our Father. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you. We, we pray that right now, by your Spirit, that you would, would work in their hearts to, to turn to you through your Son and to trust you and know you and know you as their, their Savior, their refuge. Father, we pray that for those of us who claim to be your followers, that, that you would enable us in the trials and the crises of our lives and, and, and just in our lives day by day and moment by moment to lean upon you, to, to, give, to give things to you, the things that would tempt us to fear, to, to worry. Lord, that you, would, that you would enable us just to be putting those things in your hands and seeing that you are a God who keeps his every promise. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Listen, we are so... I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.